It is a privilege for us to be able to give back to God as an act of worship, and as we do so, we're going to receive the uh, tithes and offerings this morning. Let's pray for the offering. Father, again, it is a blessing to be in your house, to be able to worship. You have been so good to us. As we offer thanks back through our giving of tithes and offering, I pray that you would be pleased. Help us to do so with joyful hearts, and help us as a church to use these gifts for the furthering of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The ushers will come at this time. As the ushers continue to pass the offering plate this morning, I'll actually start by telling you I have unfortunately forfeited the Father of the Year Award this morning. At 5.30 this morning, we were on our way to church. We had the sunrise service early today, and as I was driving down the road, I do want to clarify, I love bunnies. But as I'm riding down the road with my children, a little bunny ran out in front of me and I could do nothing but run him over. And the first thing I hear from my kids is, he was probably trying to deliver baskets. (laughs) I killed the Easter bunny this morning, so I apologize. If you didn't get anything, he was on his way to your house. So... I apologize for that. Happy Easter. It is a blessing to have you with us this morning. Without a doubt, Easter is the highlight of the Christian year as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only is it the climax of our calendar, but it's also the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. Everything else that he did was leading up to this. This is what the church is all about. Today we celebrate not only the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but especially the fact that there was a resurrection which followed. In the words of the great Paul Harvey, this was the rest of the story. Well, today I want us to look at the rest of the story. But first we need to talk about how we got to this point. Obviously, we know of Peter's denial of Jesus Christ. We know of the crowds who cried, crucify him. We know of Judas's betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, turning Jesus Christ over to the authorities. All of these things led to the cross. They led to what we find in Mark chapter 15, verse 29 through 32, where we read, those who passed by hurled insults at him shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those, who, who, those crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. 
Now, it doesn't take a genius to be able to figure out that there was an awful lot of resentment and animosity within the insults that are being hurled at Jesus Christ. And you have to wonder why. I mean, when you think about it, Jesus's primary role up until the crucifixion is to be an agent of grace and healing. Wouldn't everybody just love this guy? Wouldn't everybody be grateful for who he was, for what he did? Apparently not. It would seem that although Jesus had done much to bring hope to the people, there were many who hated everything that he represented. They hated his opposition to the old establishment. By the way, it wasn't really that God opposed the old establishment itself. He opposed the hypocrites who ran the old establishment. Others hated the way he associated with sinners. Perhaps you've been in an unfamiliar area where you've heard the phrase, well, that's just the way we do things around here. That's kind of what Jesus was running into. You see, those who were the religious right, those who had the authority and they were the ones who were quote unquote holy, they were the ones who were upset that Jesus would spend time with filthy sinners. This whole eating with sinners and touching the sick was appalling to the privileged class of Jews. And of course, you can hear some of this in their insults, but it's also likely that just as some were disgusted by him, there were also many who felt threatened by him. Consider that when he talked about tearing down the temple, remember the reference there in Mark chapter 15 that I just read, when he talked about tearing down the temple, on the surface it sounds like a physical destruction. Yet digging deeper, we see that he was completely turning upside down the religious structure of his day. Certainly, the religious leaders saw Jesus as a threat. But even some of the ordinary citizens despised him. In a couple of the Gospels, we see that one of the thieves on the cross hurled insults at him. This one suggests that both insulted him that day. Regardless of the number, it seems likely that Jesus' goodness might have made some people a little bit uncomfortable. Have you ever been around someone who seemed almost too good to be true? You guys know what I'm talking about. They, they walk in the room and immediately you feel guilty because you know you're probably not as good as they are. Maybe you've even felt like they can see your sin or maybe you just want them to be exposed as a fake so that you yourself won't feel so guilty or inferior anymore. Well, perhaps that's what drove these criminals to insult Jesus that day. The irony is that Jesus could see their sin, but as he demonstrated so many times throughout his life, he came to redeem them. He didn't come to judge them. He came to offer them grace and to give them a way out of their sin. In all of these cases, among all those who were disgusted by him, those who felt threatened by him, those who were intimidated by his goodness, we see a world of people who didn't quite realize how much they needed Jesus in their lives. I suggest to you as we get started this morning that we're not all that different from those who participated in the crucifixion story. Each of us have taken different paths to get where we are today, and many of us may not yet realize 
how much we need Jesus. But the truth is, every one of us does need him. For the most of humanity, the crucifixion story seemed like the end of the story for Christ. It was the end of a three-year journey where the disciples got to walk and to talk with Jesus As they spent time with him, they got to know him. During that time, they felt incredibly special. They became his instruments of goodness. Jesus would send them out to go as missionaries to proclaim the good news and even to do some of the healing and delivering of evil spirits. But more than that, they got to experience intimacy with Jesus Christ. Can you imagine when the crowds would go home at night And it was just the disciples sitting around with Jesus. They got to sit and talk and listen with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The one that their entire nation had been waiting for for centuries. What an incredible privilege that had been. But now, all of that appears to have come to an end. Or had it. The next three days would be the most miserable days since the creation of the world. It had to even seem darker than the days of Noah. Remember the flood that washed away almost all of humanity, sparing only one family? What seemed so dark then was that it was humanity that was being wiped off the face of the earth. Consider this, as Jesus Christ lay in the tomb. To the rest of the world, it seemed as if not just humanity is being destroyed, but God was being destroyed. Certainly, Jesus Christ's death would have made this a horrible situation, but the good news of this story is that it did not end on the cross. Certainly, he did die a human death, but it was anything from ordinary. You see, for most, death is a permanent thing. Once we die, we're dead. We stay that way. But Jesus is not ordinary. Listen to the words of Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Understand that in the act of the crucifixion, Jesus became the perfect sacrifice for our sins. As such, he conquers sin. But there was still work to be done. In the resurrection, Jesus coming back to life, Jesus also conquers death. In his death, he becomes our sacrifice, conquering sin. In the resurrection, he defeats death. And now because of that, he offers us 
eternal life. Now, as I think of the rest of this story, I can't help but think back to an event that had occurred earlier in Jesus' ministry. The story is found in Mark chapter 2. You don't have to turn there right now, but I I do want to kind of summarize a little bit of it for you. In this setting, Jesus is preaching, and he's preaching to a huge crowd of people. People have gathered in, and there are so many people that not everybody can get in. They're actually meeting in a house, which is probably a little bit unusual because often Jesus preached out in fields or alongside the water. On this day, he's in a house. And as he has gathered in, the crowds just pack in. There's one group of people that show up late. The crowd's already there. Jesus is already preaching. And they have brought their friend with them. Their friend is paralyzed. They want to bring their friend to Jesus in hopes that Jesus would be able to heal him. Well, not being deterred from getting to Jesus, they come up with the idea, let's go up on the roof. We'll tear a hole in the roof. We'll lower our friend down in front of Jesus, and surely he will touch him. So they do it. And I can imagine it was a great distraction to everybody. Jesus is in the middle of preaching. All of a sudden, you start seeing light crack through from up above. Some of whatever the roof was made of begins to fall to the floor, and you've got people that are parting ways. You know how it's funny how a place can be so packed, but when all of a sudden you've got to part ways, you can make room. And that's what happens. These four men lower their friend down in front of Jesus. They want Jesus to heal them. Jesus responds immediately in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, and he simply says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this seems like a harmless statement, but it causes quite a stir. You see, the people knew that only God had the authority to forgive sins. Yet in this case, Jesus offers forgiveness of sins. Immediately, there are those who begin to complain in their spirits about this, and Jesus calls them out. He knows what they're thinking already. He says, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. He goes on, he says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And you know what the guy did? He got up, he took his mat, and he went home. All those people who questioned whether he had the authority to forgive sins, how can you argue with what you just saw? Could any of them have told that guy to get up and expected him to get up and walk? Absolutely not. You see, if this Jesus is truly the Messiah, if he is truly the Son of God, he does have the authority to forgive sins. But if he's truly the Messiah, he also ought to have the authority to command this paralysis to be gone. And Jesus says, so that you may believe, I command you to get up, take your mat, and go home. I want you to notice the parallel to what Jesus does in Mark chapter 2 to what he does here in Mark chapter 11. Jesus poses a simple question. 
which is easier, to say his sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? Well, you guys know what the answer is. It's easier to say that his sins are forgiven because nobody can confirm or deny it. Who's going to prove that this guy's sins were forgiven? How are you going to prove it? But if Jesus could defeat paralysis, if Jesus could command this guy to get up and walk, if Jesus could do that, then we would know that he's truly God. Now consider the crucifixion and the resurrection. Just prior to the crucifixion story, we see Jesus eating with his disciples. And it's at this meal that Jesus breaks bread with them, declaring that his body would soon be broken and that his blood would soon be shed. He shares with them that it's through the shedding of his blood that humanity's sins would be forgiven. And according to Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But which is easier, to say that humanity's sins will be forgiven or to say, I'm going to get up and I am going to conquer death but so that we could know that Jesus really did have the authority to forgive sins. He also did the impossible by coming back to life. We don't have to wonder whether he truly was our sacrifice. He confirms it with the resurrection. He confirms that this was not just him being a good person and then dying. This was the Messiah, the Savior of the world being resurrected so that we could believe. Of course, Jesus had already told the people that this was coming. Do you remember the insults that were mentioned earlier in this sermon? They mocked him because he said he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. What he was doing was prophesying about his own resurrection three days after his body, the temple of God. Three days after his body was destroyed, it would be brought back to life. Now, there's one more aspect of this rest of the story. Beyond the crucifixion, we know there was the resurrection. But beyond the resurrection, there's also you and me. You see, the resurrection is not merely a historical event that took place about 2,000 years ago. It's something that applies to us now and will apply to us long after this life is over. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. In other words, when we experience Christ in a personal way, it doesn't minimize the joy of this life. Instead, it maximizes the joy of this life. Life isn't full because of all the activities that you participate in. Life is full because you find purpose and meaning in him. Life is full because you, like the disciples who walked with Jesus for three years, can have an intimate relationship with him. As we recognize that, we become the rest of the story. The crucifixion is incredibly important. Jesus paid for our sins. Our debt is paid. The wages of sin is death. Well, Jesus just paid that debt. The resurrection tells us that this life is not all there is, but rather there is more to come because he has now conquered death. It's not just about living this life better. It is also about knowing that there is a life that awaits us. 
He gives us the promise of eternal life. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And listen to this. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Jesus gives us the promise that one day he will come back for his people. And when he does, he's not just going to come back and say, hello, how you guys doing? Just wanted to check in on you. But rather, he is going to call us home. We're going to have the privilege of going and spending eternity with him in heaven. The point is that the rest of the story for us is found in the fact that the death is not the end for us either. The reality is that unless the Lord comes back sooner, all of us one day will die. But praise be to God, through his grace, death is not the end. In fact, it is the beginning. Having lived in the Philadelphia area for many years gave me quite an appreciation for Benjamin Franklin. Certainly, he had one of the most brilliant minds in American history, but the time came for him to die. And I want you to listen to the words of his own epitaph, which he composed himself. He said this, Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out, and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. He recognized that the day was coming where he would die. And as his body lay there in the grave, it would serve no purpose, but there would come a day that his body would be resurrected. And that is only be possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that has already taken place. There was one man who introduced the world to sin. And there was one man who has introduced the world to life. And that is Jesus Christ. That's the rest of the story. You know, for many, the rest of the story has yet to be written. Maybe today your story is somewhat incomplete. Maybe today your life seems incomplete, without purpose. Maybe you fear death and what it will behold. Tell you what, you have two choices regarding the rest of your story. You can write your own ending, and I hope that it turns out well. Or you can allow God to write your story for you. I assure you that you'll be far better off if you let him do the writing. He's been doing it much longer than you have. As we prepare to go to prayer this morning, I want to invite you to truly consider what his sacrifice means to you and what his life means to you. For me, in the summer of 1990, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ because I realized that I was a sinner. I just graduated high school. 
I had plans on going to Virginia Tech to be able to go and be an accountant. Actually, I was going because that's where girls were and partying and everything else. And I thought, where else would I want to be? But while at a youth camp, I felt God speaking to me. And I responded to his offer of salvation. And because of that, I gave my heart to him. I surrendered to him. Since then, God has taken me on paths that I never would have dreamed. I assure you today that regardless of where you've been, regardless of how much sin you've had in your life, the moment you choose to surrender your life to him, he will change your eternal destiny. He will promise you he will give you the resurrection and the life because he is the resurrection and the life. I want to challenge you today to consider, if you have not done so already, surrendering your life to him and allowing him to have complete control from this moment forward. Does that mean that changes will have to take place in your life? Yeah, probably so. But right now, to be honest with you, I think all he really cares about is, do you have that willing heart? Are you willing to say, God, not my will, but your will be done? And if you choose to do so, I believe today that God will accept you and bring you into his family and offer you that resurrection and life. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, we recognize that in this group of individuals, there are many who perhaps they have been in church all their lives, but have never truly had that moment of surrender. Never really had that moment where they said, God, I am fully yours, and whatever it is you want from me, Lord, I'm willing to follow. There may be others who perhaps they've never been in church, and they're just here because it's Easter. And they right now need to be able to surrender everything to you. Still, there are probably others that somewhere along the way they surrendered themselves to you, but for whatever reason, somewhere along the way, They turned their back on the decision that had been made. Lord, I pray right now that you would have your way in us. Lord, I pray that each individual who is here would be able to reveal that willing heart that says, God, whatever you have for me, I will do. With every head bowed and eye closed this morning, I want to be able to pray specifically for individuals. If you would say, Pastor, that's me. I need to surrender my life to Christ today. Maybe I've never done it, or maybe I've just walked away from the faith for so long, and the time is now. I want to make sure my life is right with Jesus Christ. Would you just raise your hand? I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to send you up front. Put it back down. Thank you. Anyone else? Father, as we come before you, Lord, you saw the hands that were raised just now. And I pray right now that as they pray to you, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. That you would make them your willing vessels. Help us to recognize that it's not just your forgiveness that you offer, but now it is life. It is eternal life. In this life, our life should be changed, but we have a hope of what's going to come even beyond this life. Lord, I pray today that you would fill us with your spirit. Work in us. Make us new. And we will give you praise, honor, and glory for what you do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Amen. It is a blessing to have you guys with us as we celebrate this Easter. I would encourage you, don't wait until next Easter to start celebrating again. Allow this to be the moment that basically we choose the rest of this year to worship the resurrected Christ. That's what we're here for. If you don't have a church home, we would love to have you guys back at some point. This is a a wonderful body of Christ that loves the Lord, and they would love you if you have not been to this church before. Thank you for being with us this morning. Go with the blessing of God, and I look forward to seeing you guys back here again.